My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really good to see all of you here on this uh, wonderful, white, snow-covered uh, Minnesota morning. It begins now, doesn't it? We, you knew that that had to end. Okay, but it's beautiful. It's, it's, it shares purdy. <laughs> Wish it wasn't so cold. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we want to give a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. And if you'd like to find out more about this church and what we believe, what we're called to do and things like that, uh, stop by at the hub out in the gathering area. Just tell them you're visiting and we have a CD and some other information that we'd love to give you. Uh, did I already ask you to turn off your cell phones? Did I, did I say that before? If you're visiting for the first time, I just told you that. Please uh, tell, turn off your cell phones, iPods, noise makers, Game Boys, anything of the sort. Charlie, I try to remember this stuff, but it's really hard. Okay, so anything that could make noise, please turn that off. And if anyone with you starts to be a distraction, crying and whatever, uh, we've got soundproof rooms in the back, and we encourage you to take them back there. Otherwise, just please read the bulletin, know what's going on around here, and if this is your spiritual home, cover all of that in prayer. Just like, Lord, bless that, and just, just, just be covering it all in prayer. Uh, we're always looking for more prayer covering. All right, we are in the middle. Oh, one more thing. Uh, I did not uh, get bit by a vampire, no, and nor am I trying to uh, cover up a hickey, uh, nor am I, did I cut myself shaving. Those are the three that are on the table. No, no, this is, I, every once in a while, I, I get a chunk of flesh taken off of me. I get these growths that runs in the family, and, uh, you know, they're cancerous, but they, they never kill us because we're looking for them. Uh, and so I've had 20-some of these, and so I just had another little chunk of flesh taken off there. The doctor promises me that, that if I just am vigilant and looking for these things, that by the time I'm 75, I, I may only have an eyeball and a mouth left, but I will be alive. So uh, you, you have that to look forward to. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, these good looks you can't destroy with, uh, you know, chiseling away. It's just impossible. And actually, my wife thinks that the scars are, are sexy, so <laughs> bring them on. <laughs> Arr, again, a scar. Look at that Anyways, <laughs> so we're in, the middle, we're in the middle of the series called Undivided. <laughs> Undivided, what a pun. Um, and it's about, it's about uh, acquiring an undivided soul, a soul that's, that's got congruity, harmony, peace on the inside, a soul that's not fragmented in a million different directions. We're looking at how to cultivate uh, uh, an orientation uh, in our life, a singular orientation around Jesus and around the kingdom. And uh, how to integrate all the a- aspects of our life into that. And so we're really looking at our heart. Because you can talk all you want about having a simple life and swimming upstream in this rat race culture by having simplicity in your life. But if we don't cultivate a simple heart and guard our hearts, well, that's not going to do much good. And so this morning we're going to be talking about relationships. And the way that relationships can fragment us and pull us out of our center or can be helpful on helping to unify us around the center and orientating us around the kingdom, relationships. Uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage I'll be weaving in and out of this message, where Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. We don't see the real thing. We see a reflection. But then when the kingdom comes, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully... Even as I am fully known. That's what relationships in the kingdom will be like. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The love he's talking about is that love that longs for. The kind of relationships where you're known and you know fully. I want to listen to, uh, have us listen to a poem that was written by Terry. 
Terry Churchill, who's the co-author of this book that we're looking at throughout this series. And the poem is called Wake Up Call. Listen very carefully uh, to this wonderful poem. Wake Up Call. Just above the electronic buzzing that slices through the world like a blade. Just below the tapping of the keyboard under my fingers. Just beside the push and pull of the things I have to do. The endless this and that. I hear your voice. Like a quiet ripple across calm water. Calling me to wake up to the loneliness of my little boy. Tapping on his own keys. Reaching out to anyone who might listen. You're calling me to wake up to the empty shell of my neighbor. Raking bone dry leaves as more of them fall without end. I hear your voice calling me back to the world of contact where eyes meet and hands touch and souls are dignified again. And I notice my own sadness harmonizing with the song you're singing to me. Are you lonely too? Mm. Love that poem. Love that poem. The World of Contact. When I first, or this last week when I uh, read that poem again, that phrase, The World of Contact, it actually reminded me of a movie, one of my favorite movies in the 90s, called Contact. Some of you have maybe seen that movie starring Jodie Foster. And I want to do one more preliminary thing before we get into the, the meat of this message by showing a clip from that movie. It really relates, I think, in a profound way to this poem. Uh, This is a movie that is, on the one hand, it's about sort of the tension between faith and reason, or the tension between science and religion, or or rationality and the the, the human heart. It's also, of course, a love story. But it is, I think, most fundamentally, a story about, even a metaphor, about the longing inside the human heart to make contact. The longing, the drive in in the human heart, a profound ache in our soul to know that we're not alone, to make deep contact with others. And it's a story about how difficult that can be. So the story centers on this lady named uh, Ellie. Ellie, all of her life, was just interested in communication, used to work with a ham radio, trying to make distant contact with folks. Uh, It was very much, uh, had a great loving relationship with her father, who called her Sparks, Uh, but he died when she was nine. Uh, And then she would try to make contact with him. Uh, through the ham radio after he was dead. She was always w- wanting to make contact with him, but also just to make contact with, with what else is out there. And so when she got older, she became a scientist, and she was in charge of this, this uh, science operation where they were uh, scanning the skies to see if there's any messages that aliens might be sending us. Ellie, locked in her planetarium, always searching the skies, Wondering if there's somebody out there. Well, eventually, a a message did come through. And to make a long story short, they were able to decode this message. And it had instructions on how to build this transportation device that could send a person hundreds of thousands of light years uh, uh, through a wormhole, wormhole, an Einstein-Rosen bridge, and uh, go to a distant civilization. And so uh, Ellie is the one who can take this trip. Uh, She goes on this journey through this wormhole, and she ends up at a place this other civilization. 
It's a place that, in one level, she's familiar with. It's Pensacola, Florida, where she had made her first long-distance contact as a child. And there she meets an alien who is uh, uh, disguised or dressed up as her father. And so let's pick up the movie at this point. Hi, Sparks. Dad? I missed you. Loved you. Oh, I'm sorry I couldn't be there for you, sweetheart. You're not real. None of this is real. That's my scientist. When I was unconscious, you downloaded my thoughts, my memories, even. That's a call. We thought this might make things easier for you. you contact us you contacted us we were just listening and there are others many others they all travel here through that transit system that you built we didn't build it we don't know who did no they were gone long before we ever got here Maybe someday they'll come back. All the other civilizations that you find, they come here? Not all. Is this some test? No, no tests. You have your mother's hands. You're an interesting species. An interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost, so cut off, so alone. Only you're not. See, in all our searching, the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. now now you go home and all of our searching the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other and you humans you feel so lost you feel so alone we found that the only thing that makes it bearable is each other it really relates I think so well to Terry's poem 
there's, there's this longing, this voice. It's just above the electronic buzz that cuts through the atmosphere. It's just beneath the, the clicking of the keyboard. It's just outside the push and the pull of, of uh, our everyday life, the endless things, the this and the that. It's a voice, a gentle voice, like a breeze on calm water or even like a faint message from outer space. And it's, it's, it's calling us to pay attention to, to wake up to this little boy, or maybe it's a little girl, sitting at their own little keyboard on the inside, trying to interface with the internet, if you will, but the internet is the outside world, and asking the question, is there anybody out there? Is there anybody who will listen? We're all little Ellies, as it were, uh, trapped inside of our own brain. The picture that Terry paints in the poem just hits me deeply. I think because I have, and I suspect I'm not entirely alone on this, uh, often felt sort of trapped inside my head. Like, I am this little kid inside there, and, and I have to use my brain and my body to interface with the outside world, but, but, but the real me is sort of trapped in there, like Ellie inside of her planetarium. I'm trapped inside of the vault of my cranium. It looks a little bit like this. So here I am. I'm sitting at the keyboard, typing away, and, and I, I'm typing what I want to say, and it, it goes through the neurons of my brain, and it comes out my mouth. But there's a sense where you can feel isolated there, trapped there. Nobody can get on the inside of that. No one can completely share your experience. There's an irreducible you-ness to you that is unshareable. And you're trapped there. You're inside your skull. No one can get in. No one can get out. And maybe you're thinking right now that that's just a reflection of my sort of quasi-autistic, idiosyncratic ways of looking at the world. But it's actually pretty accurate. It actually is pretty accurate. Look at what's going on right now. Uh, what's going on right now is something like this, okay? I'm up here talking. I'm at my little keyboard inside of my head, and I'm typing on my neuron uh, typewriter, and I'm forming uh, uh, concepts in my brain that jiggle the neurons, that then jiggle my nervous system, that then jiggle my tongue and, and mouth muscles, that then jiggle the airwaves, that then jiggle your eardrums, that jiggle your nervous system, that jiggle your neurons, and you're sitting at your own keyboard decoding what I'm saying, but maybe you don't even know what I'm saying right now, but I'm saying something, all right? It's a very complex process. So I'm way up there. You're way over there. And, and uh, there's just a whole lot of jiggling going on in between. <laughs> and it's not just my words that you're decoding. It's the very fact that, that, that I'm up here. Every aspect of what you see, hear, and smell is actually in there in your brain as a little neuron popping, and you're decoding it on your, on your typewriter. The only me that you know is because there's light photons bouncing off of me right now at 186,000 miles per second, and they're jiggling your, your retinas, which jiggle your nervous system, which jiggle your neurons, which you decode as Greg Boyd standing up there. So the only me that you really have direct access to is the me, inside, me that's inside the vault of your cranium. But that's not the real me, because the real me's up here talking to you. But I can't get into your head, and you can't get into my head, and maybe right now you're glad about that. See, it's, it's, the, the, in a real sense, we're sort of trapped in our skulls, and there's this void between us. That's what makes communication so difficult. There's, it's such a long, arduous process. There's so much room for, for, for misinterpretation. We are, in a real sense, sort of locked, in, locked inside the cranium of our brain. But we don't want to be there. We don't want to be trapped. We're like Ellie inside of her planetarium, typing away, saying, is there anybody out there? We're listening. We're trying to make deep contact. We want, we want to have a shared, uh, a shared perspective. We want to feel like there's someone on the inside. We want, don't want to feel alone. We want to make deep contact with others. There's a part of us that knows that we weren't created to feel this way. We weren't created to live life in isolation. We want to reach out. We want to somehow to cross that bridge and get others in on the inside. In a real sense, on some level, we all know what the alien said, and that is that life without deep relationships, life without deep contacts, deep contact, 
is really unbearably empty. We feel like we're floating through a void of, of infinite space, of emptiness. This is a core longing of the human heart, core longing. Now, as followers of Jesus, we all know or should know that the deepest, the deepest longing for relationship can only be met in relationship with our Creator. God created us with a God-shaped vacuum that only He can fill. He gave us this longing as a homing device to drive us to Him. And no human being can ever fill that. That's why the first, most fundamental job of every disciple of Jesus is to be continually cultivating a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, where you are are knowing and being known by your Creator. That's the first job of the disciple. No human being can give you your core sense of worth and companionship and significance. But even with that, even with that need being met, we are made to be beings who need to connect with other human beings. And not just in a dim reflection kind of a way. We long to know and to be known. That's part of our wiring. We're made in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which means we're made for relationship. He is relationship, and we're in his image, so we long for relationship. We long to be connected to others. That's why God said to Adam, uh, in, in, or said in Genesis 2, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Yes, he's got the creator, and they have an unbroken, sinless relationship. But even with that, Adam needs companionship. We're made for this. In fact, one of the purposes for which God created us is that we would reflect in our relationships with one another something of his character. So Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. The way that we connect with one another is supposed to reflect something of the way God is, God himself. And that's, that's an inbuilt thing. And so even with our deepest need being met out of our relationship with our Father, we need other people. We long for other people. We want to know and be known not only by God, but by others. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. Now, that won't happen perfectly until the kingdom comes. That's what the verse we read earlier is telling us. There'll always be something of a mere relationship here. Uh, We won't fully know and be known until the kingdom comes. But our job and the longing of our heart is to manifest that now as much as possible. What we are as kingdom people is, is, is we're supposed to be walking billboards for the coming kingdom. Everything that will be true later on, we're to manifest as much as possible now. So, for example, someday there'll be no more sickness, so we come against sickness now. Someday there'll be no more disease, so we come against disease now. Someday there'll be no more racial walls or socioeconomic walls, so we come against racial walls and socioeconomic walls now. We want to put on display the reality of the coming kingdom. So also, someday we will know and be known by God and by others, and, and there won't be any more hiding in pretense and artificiality in our relationships Our job is to put that on display as much as possible now. Will we ever get a perfect no? But we're to have relationships where we're moving in that direction. It is a divine mandate, but it's also the longing of our heart. We long for this, not to feel trapped and isolated in our own skulls. We long to know and be known. So the question then is this. If everybody longs for this, this is what is at the core of everyone's heart. Why don't we do it? We all want to know and be known. How come so rarely do we have relationships that, are even, that even approximate that? If we all want relationships where we don't have to hide and don't have to pretend and, and don't have to play games, how come we get involved in so much hiding? 
and so much pretending and so many games. Why is that? Now, there's, there's a number of reasons we could give. I want to here quickly talk about two of the ones that I think are the most fundamental. First, and this goes to the root of everything that's wrong with humanity, we fear judgment. I believe we avoid deep contact relationships because we fear judgment. We hide because we're afraid of being judged. It's a fu- fundamental flaw in, uh, in human nature. Go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, Genesis, 1, Genesis 2 and 3. Adam and Eve believed a lie, the lie of the enemy, Satan, about God's character, and so they stopped trusting God's character. They then ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of judgment. And the minute they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the minute they ate of the tree of the judgment, they covered themselves and they hid from God. Why? The answer is that the poisonous fruit was beginning to take effect. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is, is allowing the accuser to get into our brain. That's Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And when the accuser is on the inside, you start judging yourself, you start judging others, and you judge God. And so there's a sense of shame that comes as a result of that. And so we hide as a result of, a, of that. That's the situation we're in now. It's one of the reasons why we have such trouble being ruthlessly honest with others really honest with others, or even honest with God, or even honest with ourselves, let's be honest, (laughs) even honest with ourselves. We pretend and play games with ourselves, with others, and with God. Why? Because we fear judgment. There's a sense of shame around that. It is why, let's be honest, why we are all, to some degree, hypocrites. Some of us more than others, me least of all for sure, but all of us, see, there's a certain duplicity in us. Our outsides always look better than our insides, and I'm not talking physically. Our outsides, we always look a little bit nicer, a little bit more together, a little bit more Christian, a little bit more religious on the outside than we really are on the inside. We're hiding, which is one of the reasons why we feel isolated and trapped and lonely and have an unbearable emptiness. There's a facade around us. We long to know and to be known, but we also fear it. We're afraid of it. Because the enemy on the inside, the accuser says, boy, if people got to know who you really are, they'd know what a loser you are. They'd know how messed up you are, how jaded you are, how perverted you are. They'd reject you. They'd betray you. They'd turn on you, just like the people in the past did. Oh, they'll bring you pain if they really know who you are. Uh, You don't need that kind of pain in your life. Far better to have a, a painless facade relationship than a real one where you might experience that kind of pain. Yeah, you got to put up with the unbearable emptiness of no one really knowing you, but at least you avoid that kind of a pain. We fear judgment. The solution to this, folks, isn't just to say on your mark, said, go try harder, because these are the kind of things you can't try hard out of. Uh, the kingdom is not about a self-effort, try hard sort of a thing. The kingdom is always about Jesus Christ, and so the solution, the solution here, and this is one that we're all to some degree afflicted with, the solution is to turn back to Jesus Christ. As with everything else in the kingdom, it always comes back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to expose the lie of the enemy, expose the lie of the accuser. He came to liberate us from the oppression of the accuser. He came to free us from our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of evil, and therefore he came to free us to begin to be empowered to move into relationships that begin to mirror the honesty and the vulnerability of the triune God. 
Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The word truth, as I pointed out many times before, is, is the word uncovered, to uncover something. Jesus is called the truth because he uncovers the truth about God and he uncovers the truth about us. In him we see what God is really like and we see who we really are. And if we can trust that, it blows the lies of the enemy sky high and blows our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sky high. Jesus is the truth, the uncoveredness against all the lies of the enemy. He tells us what God is really like. When we look to Calvary, when we look to the cross, we are seeing God screaming to humanity, this is my heart. This is who I really am. Uh, when we look to Calvary, we see God screaming, I love you uh, with a love that you can't even begin to imagine. I suffer for you. I die for you because I want to spend eternity with you. I want to forgive you. I want to reconcile with you. I want to share my abundant life with you. I'm on your side. You don't need to hide. The enemy lied. You don't need to hide. This is who I really am. And if we can put our trust in that, really have confidence that God looks like that, well, then we don't have to do what humanity's been doing since, since Adam and Eve, and that's hiding from God because we're afraid of him. No, he's screaming, I'm not the Zeus thunder-throwing, lightning-throwing deity. I'm a God who's on the inside of your pain and on the inside of your life. And I know your sin. That's why I'm dying up here. But I love you anyways. I love you anyways. We see the truth about who God is on Calvary. And we also... We also see the truth about who we are on Calvary. This is so important. If we lock this in, it will set us free, to be honest. Here's the thing. Uh, Because of Calvary, I know the worst about you. And I also know the best about you. And because of Calvary, you know the worst about me and the best about me. The worst about you is this. Your sin was so despicable, so disgusting, so grotesque. It required God Almighty becoming a human being and dying on a cross just to set you free. That's pretty bad. Your, your, your sin put Christ on the cross. You are, in that sense, a Christ killer. Now, see, given that, everything's on the table. I already know the worst thing about you. Whatever you could tell me about the particulars of the way that you sin are almost uninteresting now that I know what the sin resulted in. You know, it'd be like, if I found out that you're a murderer, well, that, that's pretty bad. Finding out what kind of bullet you used is, is kind of inconsequential. <laughs> So the particular way that you sinned, the particular way you screwed up your life, the particular way you made your life garbage, that shouldn't surprise me or shock me or anything. I know what it did. It it ended up putting Christ on the cross, and you know the same thing about me. I know the worst about you. It's all on the table. You've been outed on Calvary. But I also know the best about you, man, and it is pretty good. And the best is this, that even even though your sin was that despicable and grotesque and disgusting, God loves you anyways. God loves you to the point of dying for you on Calvary. Amen. I know, I know that you have unsurpassable worth because God paid the highest price for you. I know the best about you. I know that you are a child of God and that, that God wants to spend eternity with you and, and, and he calls you his friend. I know the worst about you and I know the best about you. And so if we go back to Calvary and root our worth and self-esteem and confidence in Calvary and trust that, it means it, it frees us to have an honest, open, vulnerable relationship with God, but also to have honest and open and vulnerable relationships with one another. Uh, It empowers us to stop the games and stop the pretending and stop the facades and stop the dancing and and the putting on and and to get real with our stuff and invite other people in on our stuff. And when people can get in on our stuff, and I'm not saying you go out and air your dirty laundry to everybody, but when there are some folks that you can dare to let in because you're getting all of your worth and life from Christ, well then see what that does is it, 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 it enables God to begin to heal your stuff. A wound that is concealed is a wound that can never be healed. As long as you're hiding and dancing behind this facade, 
Well, you're going to stay sick. You're going to stay stuck. You're not going to grow. But when we invite others in on our life and, and, and they, they, without judgment, love us as we are and we can solicit their wisdom, we can now start to grow and be transformed ever increasingly into the likeness of Christ. Going to Christ frees us to have the kind of relationships he wants us to have, honest, open, and vulnerable. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that our horizontal relationships with one another can never outrun our vertical relationship with Christ. What I mean is this. The authenticity and honesty and realness of our relationships with one another will never outrun the authenticity and honesty of our relationship with Christ. So as with everything else, to begin to be freed in this way, we need to go back to Jesus and trust in him and get all of our life and worth from him. We we avoid deep contact relationships because we fear judgment. But we also avoid deep contact relationships with others because we feel like, many of us, we have no space. No space. Deep contact relationships require time. Significant relationships require intentionality, and they require, we all know, a lot of work. They never happen by accident. You never just sort of stumble into them, and they never happen quickly. They never happen easily. And see, as we've said a number of times throughout this series... Many of us feel as though we just don't have space for stuff like that. We feel pulled in a million directions. There are a million demands that are on us. A million things distract us. A million things suck the time. The short time we have in our waking hours each day just gets sucked away and half the time we don't even know where it goes. But where do you have space for something like this? One of the things that I think are a major space taker that we don't necessarily notice because it's so new in our consciousness has to do with technology. Just one of the things that are space takers that we need to be aware of. It's impacting us in ways that I'm not sure that we're really seeing. Technology brings a lot of blessing. I'm not here to demonize it, though often I feel like I want to. But, but there can be a demonic dimension to it. I was uh, at the park several months ago with my grandson and watching him play on the monkey bars and swing sets, and he was just adorable. And there was this other little girl there that was also just so adorable, and her parents were there watching her. Actually, her mother was there watching her. The dad was constantly on the cell phone. He would sit down for 30 seconds, get up and start talking again, then come back after five minutes, sit for 30 seconds and go and talk again. And the daughter was, was doing new tricks and new stuff and would say, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. And once in a while, he'd turn back and kind of wave and, and smile, but he wasn't there. And these precious moments, these, these irreplaceable moments, are gone. Now, I, that, I, I, I will assume, was maybe an exception to what he normally does. That was not his norm. I'll assume that. Because we all go through periods where, where life and our jobs and other things just require our full attention, and the kids have to then to go and take the back burner. So, so that's just real. But it seemed to me that this episode was sort of a, sort of a, a, a symbol of, of, of sort of the modern life. We are, we are so distracted by technology, or we can be if we're not careful. Remember what we said last week, everything is spiritual, everything is spiritual. There's a ton of blessing in technology. I'm not here to bash it, but everything is spiritual, and we as kingdom people who want everything to come under the reign of God, we've got to know what the hidden price tags are. We've got to be aware that there can be spiritual tentacles to things, which if they latch onto us, they begin to suck kingdom life and kingdom time out of us. There can be a downside to stuff. All technology, I think, has that potential downside. Here's one illustration of a hidden cost to technology. I shared this uh, last year or the year before, but I want to share it again because it really makes the point. 
Several years ago, I was speaking to uh, 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 an American Indian chief uh, who's a Christian spokesperson on various causes. And he told me this story about this native Indian tribe in Canada, northern Canada. And for hundreds, even thousands of years, they would always go out hunting together. And if anyone got anything, they would share it with the whole group. And the, the, the tribe's life largely revolved around their, their hunting together and then uh, fixing the meal together and then eating together. They did everything, had everything in common like this. In the 50s, electricity came to the reservation that they were on. And it wasn't too long before someone bought a freezer. And with that freezer, they discovered that they could keep a part of, if they, if they got the kill, they would keep a part of it for their family. In case the tribe went through a lean time, they would have their family covered by that. This tribe did not have a, you know, before that they had a, you know, all eat the, 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 the elk or the moose or whatever. They had to eat it right away because otherwise it would spoil. So they shared it with everybody. But now you have the capacity to say mine and hold it back for you and your loved ones. They didn't have a word for refrigerator or freezer in this tribe. So they coined the term stingy box. They called it stingy box. It wasn't too long before somebody else got a freezer because if he's going to hold off for his family, I'm going to hold off for my family. Then somebody else said, well, I'm going to hold off for my family. And then before you know it, everyone's buying freezers. Before you know it, that whole spirit of camaraderie, one for all, uh, all for one, was now fragmented into a bunch of competing individuals. Instead of camaraderie, you've got competition. And the, the, the heart of that tribe was largely lost. Now it's every man for himself, every family for themselves. Is our freezers of the devil? Of course not. No, no, there's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong, but everything is spiritual and everything has a price tag. In this case, this tribe paid for this technology with their soul. All technology is like that. There's a hidden dimension that we've got to be aware of that can suck life out of us, suck time out of us if we're not careful. The irony is that technology is, is usually kind of sold as something that will save us time and help us to connect with others. It's kind of ironic. And in a sense, it does. In a sense, it does. You know, with, with technology, you can make contact with thousands of people that you never could have made contact with before. It's amazing. You can just reach out. The world's at your fingertips. I got this droid. I'm just amazed by this droid. I can get email on this droid. I can, get, I can tweet. I can, I can uh, uh, get uh, Facebook and all these other things. And, and in an instant, waiting in line at the airport, I can be touching all these, you know, making all these different contacts. Get in touch with old school friends and things of the sort. Technology does help us in terms of the quantity of our relationships. But the important question is, is what can it do for the quality of our relationships? Here's, here's a theorem that you could take to the bank. This is a true thing. There's an inverse relationship between quantity and quality. The more you, can have, the more you have of one, the less you can have of the other. But you can't have maximal both. This is sort of the sociological application of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, for those of you who care about that stuff. The more you have a one, the le- you can have a lot of uh, relationships, or you can have a few deep relationships, deep contact relationships, but you can't have both. Technology is marvelous at increasing the quantity of our relationships, but for that very reason, if we're not careful, it can suck away uh, the life of the quality of our relationships. Facebook, you can have thousands of friends. But none of that can give you the quality of a real friend. And I can, through my droid, I, I can touch thousands of people, and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus touched thousands of people. He, he ministered to thousands. Some of us are called to do that, but he also made 
quality time for 12, and even in that 12, he made special time to pour himself into three. So the question we got to ask is not how many friends, how popular are you on Facebook, but rather, who are your 12 and who are your three? I can make touch a lot of people, make contact with a lot of people on my droid, but to have a quality relationship, i got to turn the stupid thing off and be present to the person face-to-face who's in front of me. So... The kingdom is always about the quality. Quantity is not bad in and of itself, but we've got to be careful. What is kingdom? See, if we have a lot of quality, if you're putting all your time in, qual- in, in the quantity relationships, that becomes one more thing that sucks time out of you, that fragments your soul, that pulls you in a lot of different directions. Whereas if you have a few who are getting to know you and you are knowing them, know and be known, well, see, that actually helps you orientate your life singularly around the kingdom and helps grow you and helps develop you and help satisfy the longings of your heart. Let me close with three very quick suggestions here. Number one, listen to the little boy that Terry talked about, or the little girl sitting at the keyboard in the inner soul. To listen, this is what this whole series has been about. To listen, you've got to pay attention. The the, the voice is a quiet one. It's just above, just above the electronic buzz that cuts through the atmosphere. It's just beneath the clicking of the typewriter. It's just beyond the pull and the push of the this and the that in our life. The voice is like a, like a, like a, a breeze on, 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 a, on calm water or like a faint message coming to us from outer space. The breeze is the ache in the heart. And we need to attend to the aches in our heart. We've been talking about this this whole series. I find that first thing in the morning is the best time to just scan the heart and say, what is real? What's going on? And sometimes you might find that there's an ache there. Pay attention to that. And the ache may be a faint echo of the fact that you're suffering some of the unbearable emptiness of having a life that's not significantly known, not significantly shared. And if you trace that by God, will use that, that voice, to give you wisdom about how and, and motivate you to begin to cultivate deeper, deep contact relationships. Listen to the little boy. Secondly, offer up all your relationships to God. Terry, at the end of every chapter, including this one in the, in the book Undivided, has some marvelous exercises uh, to, to pause, to respond, to listen, to pray that really are so helpful at, at getting at the thing we're talking about here, uh, getting us aware of what's going on in our heart. In this chapter, she mentions uh, uh, one exercise is to make a list of all the acquaintances and all the friends in your life. And then to, in prayer, just go over that list and pay attention to how your heart responds and what God may be saying to you as you go through this list. Are there some on that list that you need to make kind of part of your 12 or part of your 3 and pour more life and more time and more commitment and maybe take more risks with them? Are there others that perhaps you need to back out of they're not supposed to be there. You can't have qu- maximum quantity and maximum quality. What needs to give here? And you see God's wisdom about that. Offer up all of your relationships with God. Just, just, just say, Lord, they are yours. Teach me what, what you want me to have or not have. And the final thing is to make space. We have got to make space. I encourage you to talk to God and to talk to friends. To get an honest feedback on the possibility that there are commitments in your life that should not be there. Just get an honest assessment. Uh, Ask the question, 
Is it the case that maybe if you have people who will speak honestly to you and you listen to God, is it the possibility that maybe some of the hectic pace of your life is because you've bought into some of the idolatry of the culture? Be open to that possibility. Is it possible that some of the hectic pace of your life, the reason you don't have time to to develop quality relationships, is because you're holding on to false beliefs? For example, a lot of parents today seem to believe that if you don't give your kid every single opportunity that's out there, you're a bad parent. So you run your kids ragged, run your marriage ragged, strain everything, trying to give them every possibility because you want to be a good parent, when the one thing they need most you're not giving them, and that is you. Quality time you, not running around you, not scattered you, not fragmented you, but you and them. You're not being a bad parent if you don't give them every opportunity in the world. No one's ever been able to do that. That's a false, very recent sort of, sort of belief. We can hold beliefs like that that just sort of make us run ragged. Call into question some of the beliefs that are there. Have you perhaps allowed technology to encroach too much in on your life? Lord, just give us wisdom about that. Talk to friends about that. Do you spend too much time on Facebook with the quantity rather than the few that you want to have a quality relationship with? Are you on the computer too much, surfing the internet too much? Do you watch too much television? Is the phone on too much? Here's something that's bizarre. If I'm talking to somebody and we're having a quality relationship and somebody comes up and, and, and interrupts us, I will say, uh, you know what, we're having a conversation here, you're going to have to wait. We would all do that, right? This is a quality relationship, you don't get to interrupt. Why then do we allow the phone to interrupt everything we're doing? You're having a quality relationship, a discussion with your wife or your kids or your friend, the phone rings, oh stop this, i got to talk to the phone. No, they're interrupting you. Rebuke the phone. Turn it off. Have the good conversation. Get back to them if it's important to leave you a message. I mean, yeah, there are times where the job or whatever requires that you're on call, but we've got to be able to shut that stuff out. Don't give it the authority of lordship over all the other relationships where it gets to trump everything. No, no, ask the question, are we allowing technology to encroach too much on our life? It can be a tremendous blessing, but we've got to have strong parameters around it, otherwise those spiritual tentacles start latching onto us and sucking time and life out of us. One final thing is this, and just ask God's wisdom on this. Look into the possibility of that there may be ways of altering the pattern and the rhythm of your life to include others in more meaningful ways. Here's the thing. We are all conditioned, or at least most of us, to, with regard to every activity, what's on our radar screen is uh, me and my family, nuclear family. That, that, that's sort of the parameters of our consciousness when we're thinking about doing anything. That's not biblical. I'm glad you love your family, but community is biblical. And, and, and so look at the possibility of inviting others, those you want to have quality relationships with, Always be asking the possibility of when you could maybe weave them into your life. You're raking the leaves. Why not call one of your friends and say, hey, you want to come over and rake the leaves with me? And then I'll help you rake the leaves. Or, or now it would be more appropriate to say you're shoveling the snow. Hey, want to come over and help me sh- uh, shovel the snow? Woo, what a good time. Ah, but then I'll help you. I mean, why, why do it alone? And always be asking, what can we do together? Uh, you're going out to a movie, invite some friends along. Going to the grocery store, maybe you want to invite some friends along. In fact, here's, a, here's, and I end with this, here's a, here's a, a good use of technology. Uh, and, and my core group of friends, uh, we, we developed our own Twitter account. Now, I didn't develop this, but someone in our group is smart and knew how to do this. So they, they, we have our own little Twitter account. And now whenever anyone's doing anything, we just tweet everybody else. Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Oh, okay, I'll go. We're, we're thinking about going out to the movie. What, what do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm doing the you know, leaves over here. Wait, wait, wait. Someone want to come and join me? 
I need a little help moving a couch. And, and you just are, are now using technology in a good way where you're just weaving people into your life. And as you weave them into your life, now, now you're taking steps towards deep contact, doing life together, shared life together. That is what the kingdom is all about. It's not the quantity. Uh, really, get, get, just get rid of that Facebook popularity thing. I'm not saying it's wrong to make contact with old friends, but always put the highest priority on the few that you want to take risks with, you want to go deeper with, that you can help live out the kingdom and they can help you live out the kingdom. Then you're uniting your soul, orientating your soul around kingdom relationships rather than being fragmented in a million trillion different ways. I'm going to close in prayer and I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here and if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, please spend some time praying with these folks. Make sure that you reach out and touch some people and invest in the ones that matter the most and pour into them. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you have invited us into a relationship where we can know you and are known by you. In this fallen world, God, we often feel trapped in the inside of our cranium. But Lord, Lord, empower us by the power of your spirit to boldly trust that you are as beautiful as you reveal yourself to be so we don't have to hide. And then, Lord, out of that fullness, God, give us a boldness to be open and honest and cultivate relationships where there's deep contact made, where we get on the inside of each other's lives and serve one another and have a love that begins to mirror in its own way the love of the triune God. As your people, we surrender everything to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and make contact, deep contact.